this is Rob Carmichael, and welcome to another Mainly Matters Business podcast. And keeping in the tradition that I've had uh, with previous podcasts, today I'm joined with another University of Maine alum, distinguished University of Maine alum, I should say, to talk about his extensive and very successful career in the transportation logistics industry, kind of a different business approach this time. Dan Martin is a 1988 graduate of the University of Maine with a degree in business, and he's he's a proven high-energy leader with a broad range of success as a senior executive in diverse business enterprises such as transportation services, supply chain, packaging, and logistics, so a, a deep logistics background. He's also had a demonstrated ability to successfully lead and execute uh, turnaround conditions as well as achieving sustained growth, uh, aggressive growth objectives. And Dan is currently the CEO of XGS Express Global Systems, a private equity-owned company with Alterian Partners, and we'll talk more about what, what they do. And just a little from his, uh, his uh, personal background, Dan's married to his college sweetheart, Shelly. He really married up. And uh, she was also a graduate of the University of Maine, and they have three grown children. And just uh, as I am uh, this year, their youngest is graduating from college this spring. So we'll have we'll have our kids uh, finished with that part of their lives so far. So welcome to Mainly Matters, Dan. Oh, thanks, Rob. Thanks for the introduction. Wow, that's that's great. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And I do really mean you married up. I mean, you hit the jackpot. <laughs> Well, that's the one thing you said right in everything you did. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Got the girl from Caribou. I appreciate it. So, well, well, let's get started. There's just so much uh, you've had, you have had just a tremendous career and an interesting career because I haven't really, I've had a number of UMaine grants from engineering degrees to business degrees, as you have, uh, but I haven't had anybody that's worked in this field uh, pretty much the, as you have the whole your whole career has been transportation logistics of one form or another. So we're going to talk about that, but let's start with what brought you to the University of Maine? You grew up in Methuen, Mass. Was there a connection to UMaine or how did you end up at UMaine? You know, I, I tell people as a joke, you know, I, I, the reason I went to Maine is because I tore my ACL in, in, uh, in high school and college in prep school. And uh, that's kind of my my running joke. But um, the reality is I once I did that, um, I really didn't look towards being I was going to play football in college. That was my vision, like every young kid. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it ended up really moving more towards what's the right school for me? And I ended up getting a track scholarship. So the University of Maine came knocking. We did have a, uh, the principal of Methuen High School at the time was probably one of the best boosters the University of Maine has seen in that part of the country. Um, he was a college roommate with Jim Ballinger, the track coach oh, at the no time, you know, Jim. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I ended up running up to the school and meeting Ed Sterna, the legendary mm-hmm. coach of, of the University of Maine track team for almost 40 50 years and uh the rest was history so yeah that's how i ended up there it was really really cool story well and uh, of course there are a lot of a lot of massachusetts uh kids come to maine um and uh, other new england areas but a lot of massachusetts kids so um it's not unusual but i, I was curious i don't think i'd ever really talked to you about uh, about that piece of it i knew yeah. you did uh, you did run track and and I, I guess i'd either forgotten or hadn't heard about the connection with jim ballinger so yeah that's yeah. Uh, interesting so you were a, a business marketing major and uh, as you graduated from Maine, how did you get started in the career that sort of led you down to, uh, toward uh, uh, where you are right now? You know, I think I think like every probably current Maine student and, you know, the kids graduating from college, I, I there's a lot of people who just don't know exactly what they want to do. But I was always intrigued and influenced by my my family. So my my parents were both in business. My father was very successful in business and, you know, leading influence. And, you know, what do I do next in my life? So um, that was a big, big piece of it. And I did a series of, of college internships and um, it, it just felt like the right career for me. So I ended up getting into a corporate training program with Ryder and it, you know, I got to give all the credit in the world to my, my, probably my dad who, who was uh, really successful, and I 
really enjoyed watching him in his career. And your dad had been in sales uh, most of his career, uh, wasn't he? Was he was yeah, in the 30, sa- 35 years, 35 years with Kellogg's, you know, something you don't see today. But yeah, 35 years, one company. So retired, uh, retired there in the 90s. Yep. And did, did the sales piece uh, intrigue? So when you started with, or maybe you could start out by t- some of the jobs you had at Ryder, were they sales related? Were they, uh, you know, more in the background? Yeah, they, they had a, um, they had a, an aggressive training program. So they were, they were hiring or recruiting um, people to be management leadership trainees. So back then it was a very formal program where you'd come in, you do, you know, three months in a job, go get training, three months in another job, go get training. And the whole deal was you were going to get thrust into leadership over the course of your first 18 months. So, um, yeah, I started up really just doing kind of the basic, what I would call the grunt work of the business, which is, you know, starting in rental, um, renting trucks, you know, working with the maintenance department, really doing customer service, doing a little bit of collections, doing a little bit of everything, and then kind of progressed through, you know, a job into sales and then into management um, from there. So really in 18 months, I did three different, uniquely different jobs, which led to, you know, a management career. So and, it, When we think of rider, uh, most of us think of that, the retail uh, going to yeah. rent a truck to move, but Ryder was is much, or it was anyway, and maybe it still is. Yeah. Uh, there are many, many different yeah. parts of Ryder. Would you share? Yeah, they're an inter- international logistics company. They're probably six six million, a little over six million dollars, six billion dollars in in annual sales. Um, they operate the largest leasing and rental fleet in in the um, in the United States, probably in the world in the trucking side of the business. And they also operate a 3PL business, which is, you know, providing last mile and mid-mile logistics services for companies, you know, just about in every size. So they're they're very influential in transportation trucking, and they've continued to have a lot of success, you know, even today. Now, for, for young, and I like to try to throwing things here I don't know how many young listeners we'll have, or at least when I say young, talking high school, college. I know we have some. When you, when you mentioned uh, the internships, and I know those are really really important now for kids in college. Uh, do you, as a leader now, do you look at those as uh, as really key things when you're interviewing uh, applicants and candidates for jobs? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the the foundational experiences that you go through in those early parts of your career, you don't even know you're going through it, right? It's, it's, it's meant to be developmental. You're meant to get thrown into situations where you learn and and make mistakes and get, you know, redirected. And I look back on that as probably the most influential part of my career. If I hadn't started with a company like Ryder, I don't, I don't think I'd be here today. I think you really need to think about, you know, what are the things you need to develop in and then embrace it, you know, when you jump out and, and get out of school. And I was, I was fortunate enough to get into a program like that. Um, there are not a lot of them out there anymore, but, but if you can, I think it's, it's critically important to really think about that as a jump start to your career for sure. And I, I agree. I think I remember the early days of my military career. You, you do basically, you do basically anything you need to do yeah. to grow and develop. You volunteer for the, some of the jobs that people don't want. And, yeah. and and it's all learning. It's all growth and development. So I certainly can understand yeah. that from from the a different career that I I had early on. How about mentors? We all have we all have people in our in the early stages of our career that we look back on now and say, "Hey, that person really really helped me along the way." Uh, somebody yeah. like that that you can point to. I mean, there's no doubt my father was you know an early early mentor. But you know you you're. I think when you get to a certain point in your life, you, uh, you know, you go through that adolescent phase of, you know, wanting to push away from that, but you can't, I could not deny that he was, you know, one of the most influential people in my life. But when I jumped into the professional world, um, you know, I met a guy named Nick Rossetti, who was probably the most, um, most difficult, uh, 
guy to work for, to be honest with you. And he was one of those guys who was, um, you know, about growth and accountability. And he really spent the vast majority of his time um, trying to develop his people. And it was incredible how he just embraced that as, you know, part of what he did. And, you know, he was one of those guys who really made you uncomfortable. And there's like people in your life that you work with or work for that kind of get you out of your comfort zone. And you don't realize at the time, but those are the times you're developing the most in your life. And Nick was one of those guys. And he used to even say that, you know, I'm going to get you out of your comfort zone. I'm going to get you to think differently. I'm going to get you to work harder. And he did it. And uh, to this day, we're, we still remain friends. So that was, you know, 30 years ago. That's awesome. And I think that's so important for, for young people as they're starting out to seek out people like that, seek out those people that'll challenge you, but uh, we'll, we'll also provide that guidance and direction. Yeah. I'm sure in the mil- in the military, you've, you've found the exact same thing. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can think to, to one of my early, early commanders who uh, ended up being wounded in the Grenada invasion was out for six months, but his leadership and, and management style was, was an empowering style and, and, a, and yeah. somebody that really challenged us. And we sort of you know, didn't miss a beat. You know, it sounds a little harsh, but he, yeah. he, he, uh, he challenged us so much and empowered us that when he was gone, we could continue to roll and continue to function. I've always thought that was an important trait with leaders is, you know, you yeah. want to, you want to set it up so that when you're not there, the, the company can still function. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thrive. Yeah. Yeah. So that's you, awesome. How long were you, you, so you would uh, ride it for a number of years. Mm-hmm. About twelve years, oh, yeah. Twelve years, and you moved from Ryder to uh, was it uh, Ifco initially? Yeah, so Ryder. I moved with Ryder. I ended up rolling into uh, a private equity spinoff of Ryder as kind of a you know challenge in my life with a small group. My mentor was one of them who went off, and we sold the division of Ryder to another company, and it. It found its end, you know, at some point with, um, you know, a buyer who I just wasn't aligned professionally with. And um, and then, you know, actually, ironically, another the former president of IFCO was, uh, I mean, of Ryder was starting a company, IFCO. And uh, he had started the company through a series of acquisitions and he had called on me and uh, said, look, we I don't know what I want you to do, but we're, we're, you know, a private equity now, and we're trying to develop the company. We're in a little bit of hardship. We need a little bit of uh, support to turn a little, a few of our divisions around, and we'd love you to come on. So they were in a distressed cash position. Um, it was a true turnaround. I mean, you know, from the, the very get-go, and it was something I hadn't done in my career. So that was right sort of the beginning of, that was sort of the beginning of that experience of taking a company and working with a company that needed to be turned around. And, and they... They were a different, uh, their logistics, but in the uh, paddle, palleting and crating, correct? Yeah, it was. Did you yeah, talk a little in, bit about that? Yeah, I mean, the, what nobody really thinks about in, in the supply chain. You know, Ryder had always been about the trucks and the transportation side, and logistics, and, and that's, you know, literally driving, storing, and distributing product from warehouses. I mean, that's that's the nuts and bolts of it, but... Everything rides on a on a platform. Everything gets shipped in a carton, a container, a box, or something, and nobody really ever thinks about it. So this business intrigued me because it was it was such a niche business. There weren't, weren't a lot of national competitors. There weren't you know there weren't a number of companies even anyone knew about. They rode under the radar, and it was essentially a recession proof kind of a business. And um, you know it was fairly rudimentary because it wasn't, you know, you're not dealing with automation and technology and, and things that drive the business. It really truly was repairing wooden pallets and moving around the supply chain. And we did have a container division that was just being launched. And this was in the, you know, 2001 era. Um, that was a, a plastic returnable food container business. And and that was basically, that was the business. And what we had to do is really just firm up our, our cash position, our pricing, our leadership, uh, and execute a turnaround that, um, you know, we were well-funded to do. So it was a, a great business and an interesting um, 
an in, interesting change to my career at that point, working for a small company. And, and we're talking uh, creating and, and uh, packaging, those sorts of things for major yeah. companies, Walmarts and uh, low, you know, the Home Depots and those places, right? Absolutely. Yep, yep. When you go into, even into the back of a, a BJ's or a Sam's Wholesale Club and you look you know, along the racks, everything is sitting on a pallet or is in a crate. And uh, if you look in the food, you know, bins, a lot of the food produce shipped in into retailers is shipped into a small carton or container. Those are all the things we're talking about. And we made a business out of repairing them or reusing them or cleaning them and shipping them back into the supply chain. So that was kind of the foundation of what IFCO was. And it was Pretty intriguing, fascinating business. You're right. It, it, probably 95% of the people in this in the world, in the United States uh, as well, don't even think about supply chain, but they're thinking about it now, I, I think, more than probably ever in our history. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for, for all the wrong reasons. But right. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. We, we used to say we want to be the invisible supply chain, meaning things just get there, you know, the Amazon effect. They, you know, you just get online, you click the order and they're there. You don't think about how they get there. You know, you don't want to, you know, nobody wants to know about that. That's the dirty part of the business, but it's been illuminated for all the wrong reasons in the last, uh, last couple of years for sure. And, and we'll talk a little bit more as we roll along about that, that whole part of uh, what's going on in the world today uh, as well. But you transitioned from, from uh, well, uh, t- talk about the the transition between uh, was it Chep and Ifco, and was that just a was that a purchase? It's it was um, you know it's kind of funny. I say I only ever um, you know took three jobs in my entire life, literally. I I only ever did that. Um, Ifco um, was acquired by by a big big multinational uh, company called Brambles, and they were a competitor, they were a strategic buyer, if you will, of this smaller private equity IFCO. And they had similar businesses. And, um, you know, I think at that point, when you're at a senior executive level, there were there were seven of us that were leading the company, leading IFCO in, in North America. And, you know, you, you kind of look at your career and you go, well, you know, they pretty much have all these positions duplicated, you know, our, our days are numbered. Um, but I was fortunate enough to really get to learn their business over the first six months of transition. And over the course of the first year, um, basically the position I held, which was the head of, you know, all things commercial sales and marketing, uh, customer service at IFCO would became available for the, for the $2 billion division at, at CHEP in North America. And, um, Somehow, you know, I was fortunate enough to get the job. So it really, I went from a $500 million smaller company to this $2 billion leadership role in sales and marketing and customer service. And it was it was a fascinating business. The real difference between CHEP and IFCO is they were the, the industry leader globally in the space. We were more of an industry leader in North America. And they... They uh, they dominated grocery to the point where between the two businesses, Chef and Chef and Ifco, we had about 80, 80 to ninety percent share of the pallet business and the packaging business that mm. uh, that we were leading. So it was a pretty it was a pretty big leap. Felt like I was going back to Ryder in terms of scale and type of company, um, but it was it was pretty great to be jumped into this really large leadership role at that time. And what was the, uh, again, uh, you may have mentioned it, and I, you know, I missed it when you were talking earlier, the, the value added for the produce in those in the crates and the packaging that was so unique at the time. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in Chef's case, it was more pallets, but the, 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 the container division that was now separate is um, – it, it's a returnable plastic container that basically allows um, shippers, you know, produce companies to ship their product at a lower cost than Corgate box in a sustainable way, meaning we're not filling landfills with these wax carton boxes and all the mm-hmm. dunnage that goes inside of them. And it allows for air, immediate airflow to your, to your produce and, uh, and you can say the same for meat and cheese and eggs and other things that also get shipped in RPCs today. But 
for the produce area, it just it lowers the temperature immediately for the produce, which when you're bringing product right from the field, strawberries and, and you know, bananas and apples, and you're putting them in a box that gets enclosed, a corrugate box, immediately that, that heat really diminishes the value of the product almost from minute one, as soon as that box is closed. The airflow in the RPC really allowed for you know, I'm getting very technical, but for the life cycle, the product to last longer. And the sustainable footprint piece was such a big and intriguing part of, you know, why I love the business. It really, you know, the the, the footprint and the greenhouse gas emissions just dropped immediately in the supply chain. So we had value across the yeah, entire supply yeah. chain. A couple of value added from, from both the environment as well as the longevity of the product. It, That's it right. certainly sounds right. like. So yeah. when, when you is a you know this whole focus my focus on my podcast has been varied but traditionally uh, it's been about leadership and i want to talk a little bit about the the differences if there are any but what differences do you take as you're going into a situation with a turnaround versus maybe um you might take with with a company that's that's relatively stable solid that uh, somebody might move into I mean, it is a it is a completely different uh, emo, you know state that the business was in. You know, we we were high market share, very stable, financially stable company. You you really start to realize quickly that how do you how do you add value here? You know, what is what is the thing that you can do that really leave your mark on the business, and um, and and how does this company operate differently? And you know, first and foremost, you know, you're dealing with a company that has layers and layers of people that really drive the business. So unlike being in an entrepreneurial small company where, you know, you you do you do things and you lead things at the same time in, in, a, in a bigger business, you're leading things and you're you're driving change in in the business at a leadership role. So that was the first thing is really understanding where you sit in the organization um, so you have to be a little bit, you have to be more visionary and, and you have to really understand what the strategic plan was and, and how to drive that. I think the other piece was Jeff had a reputation for kind of being the biggest, but also being a little bit of, um, you know, the bully and faceless, you know, company in the marketplace. So we, we really set out a vision to say, we're, we're going to impact the business in these three or four areas try to improve the ease of doing business. We're going to try to grow in, a, in areas that we hadn't grown in before, different segments of the market, and drive growth back into the top line and really improve um, overall the, the customer experience in the, along the way. So those were kind of the edicts of the business. Had, I had about 450 employees at the time, um, both in sales and customer operations. Um, and you know, creating value for customers was really our focus over the the upcoming months and years as that advanced. So, just a different different kind of business. And um, you know, we spent a lot of time you know getting the right people in the right jobs because leadership is so critically important when you're in a company of you know two or three billion dollars. So, really spent a ton of time doing that. Absolutely, and. Uh- you you went from there to your most recent position as CEO of Express Global Systems. You've been with the company what nine months or so. How did you approach your role as you transition? At Express is in I should say is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's the headquarters, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. How did you approach that as you came into the position again? Um, looking at, uh, I assume it was a, a turnaround or somewhat of a turnaround situation, or some at least some challenges you had going in? It, it, it was, and we're fortunate to be a very pretty stable company as we sit here today. So XGS, another niche logistics provider, is the largest, just so you know for your, for your audience and you, is the largest independent logistics provider for the flooring industry. So if you think about long rolls of carpet, even turf and heavy you know, carpet tiles and linoleum and LVT, things that, again, people don't really think about how do they get from point A to point B. Well, we're the largest provider in the U.S. and we serve about 96% of the U.S. in, in our footprint. But, You're trucking uh, across country. From, from we're transportation. Yeah, 
transportation, logistics, warehousing for all of those products for our customers. Yeah. But yeah, jumping into a new industry in a new role. I mean, I had very little time. I pretty much overlap from the president of IFCO uh, at the time into this role. So, you know, you you need to start off saying, okay, I got to make a clean break here. You know, it's, you can't take what you learned from that company and jump in and do it here. Some of the basic leadership principles you can, but you got to really get that clean break and start from scratch. So it, it, it's kind of a mental break and you go right back into a learning mode. So um, that was kind of my initial mindset. I got to have a break, get back in the learning mode and accelerate my learning. Um, and then part of that acceleration of learning was immersing myself in the first few months in the job, just like you've done, I know, and mm-hmm. several changes you've made in your career by just getting to the basics of the business. So I, I spend hours and hours on customer service calls, porting in with our service agents, just listening, learning the business from our customer side. I work the docks for several days, try to visit not only one, but you know, several locations around the country. We've got 38 sites. So just getting the differences in culture around the country. You know, I met with literally every level employee in the company and, and just, you know, listened. And I even sat in a, a couple of days, um, you know, doing truck delivery routes with our truck drivers and just accelerating my understanding of the business and how we do it really from the, from the grassroots. And the goal really, you know, is, as I tell people, anybody's taking a new job is like focus on reaching that break-even point as quickly as possible, which is where you're you're contributing something, um, you know, more than taking, you know, from the company. So you're contributing um, as quickly as possible in the role. So, yeah, I mean, that was really my focus when I took on a job. That's an interesting um, that that's an interesting approach. It 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 makes. It makes perfect sense too. You want to come in and you want to show, or you want to demonstrate very quickly that yeah. your value and get it to the break-even point, and then you can move from there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can't just jump in and do it because it does require a tremendous amount of, you know, communication and trust, you know, on both sides. So, you know, I I, I still do this today, but I think. You know, even more important when you're just starting is is do hold a lot of kind of formal skip level meetings, meaning, you know, as the CEO, you don't get to talk to the front line all that often. So I personally, you know, tell my leaders, I'll tell my COO, look, I'm going to have a skip level with all of your direct reports. And he's, you know, that now they're open to it. I think it, it initially it comes across as, you know, whoa, 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 you stepping over the boundaries here in the chain of command, it's not. It's really just about listening and asking questions and getting to know what they're dealing with. And, you know, that was part of the trust. And then make some, I think one thing you also have to do is make some quick decisions, you know, in leadership and and gain the trust through that. So there are a couple of areas. One of them was really, you know, we're going to talk about it later, I think, about, you know, some of the hiring struggles of the workforce. And we were struggling, you know, to just, you know, take some of our pay rates up in a few regions in the in the country, and that was one of the qu- first decisions I made. Is to we need to get to a hundred percent very very quickly, and get these these bodies hired. So we had to raise our rates, and it, we basically jumped two three levels of pay scale in order to do that. And that was one of the very first decisions I made. But what that did was it gained the trust of the people who have been struggling for months and months to try to get people on board. Mm-hmm. Um, so make some quick decisions, try to get people, you know, to believe in you and trust you, and then provide this layer for consistency and two-way communications. So, well, and I was going to ask that, uh, that how do you, how do you develop a new guy coming in from the outside? How do you quickly do that? You've sort of, you've started to touch on that. How do you develop trust? You know, it takes a yeah. lot of trust to, for, for, uh, employees that are there for you to you know skip a skip a level down talk to their folks and know that mm-hmm. what your what your reason really is it takes some trust that you had to develop yeah i i read the, i read uh, a book about seven years ago and it was from stephen r covey the son of stephen covey right mm. and it was called the speed of trust i don't know if you've ever if you've ever read it but you, you can get it in the first 90 pages but it's the, it's i mean when you have trust in your organization 
you can get things done so much quicker. I mean, ultimately, that's the principle of the book. And it talks about different ways to do that. But we, you know, almost within the first month of being on the job, we started this town hall. Um, and it was basically, uh, you know, a team's call, you know, uh, where we just got every employee on the phone and we pre-solicited questions. And some of those early meetings, you know, those early days, the questions were brutal. You know, they were about you know, when is the company going to start paying me more? And how, you know, how come so-and-so is, you know, making more money than I am? Or some of these basic fundamental things that just have to be dealt with. Um, and I remember the first time I said, we're going to open up questions to everybody. And my leadership team kind of took a step back and said, whoa, 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 how, that, that's going to be tough. How are we going to do that on the fly? So we have to be honest with our people. We have to create an environment where there's trust. So they, they can't trust us unless we can answer their questions. So um, yeah, I can I can honestly say those were some tough early days of town halls. We just got really brutal questions that we just had to face the reality of where we were. Fast forward all the way to, to my last town hall. They're asking questions about this, the strategy of the business, which is really where you want your people thinking. Exactly. Um, They're beyond yeah. the, how am I going to live day to day? type yeah. worries yeah. to where are we going to go so as a company. It, but those questions really created part of the roadmap of how we were going to really focus our business and improving, you know, what what was most important to our people first. And then until you do that, you really can't gain the trust and you can't go and do what you have to do. And that's to service your customer and grow the business. So um, but we talked yeah, a lot about uh, engaged employees, disengaged employees and actively disengaged employees in, in, in the business right. world and in leadership. And, and that's what you're, you're, you're trying to do. You're trying to get your folks to that point of, of being engaged in where the company is going and, and being a part of it and being committed to it and not, again, not worrying about the things that are going to just feed, put food on the table and those things as much yeah, as maybe early that's on. Huge, huge. Now you, so when you left, uh, and I should have said this earlier, you left the last company very, very successful. They were very, very successful. That turnaround was a success, and and you roll into this this position, and y- y- again, you described the the new challenges that you you've been working on the last nine months, and you came into this probably at one of the most difficult times for anybody to to go into a new new position in the middle of the pandemic and, and all of those sorts of things. So we talk, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the pay started to talk about that and nationwide, as we know, I think and it, there's, there's a little bit of disagreement with statistics, but uh, one of the ones I read was the U S has experienced a shortage of 80,000 truck drivers. Mm-hmm. And of course, 72% of America's freight moves by trucks. Can you talk about uh, a little bit more about, uh, in addition to the pay, what you've been doing to deal with uh, the workforce challenges that we're all dealing with. Talent management is a real, real challenge today. It's huge. It's huge. And and, and honestly, this is kind of a lesson that the, the supply chain industry should have learned um, for probably a decade. Um, all the industry analysts have been talking about this shortage that it's coming, it's coming. And, and it was there and we all knew and we were feeling it, you know, in a way that was a little bit of a disruption to the business, but on a scale, you know, probably about midway of all the challenges that you face, this driver shortage piece was set, it sat there in the middle. In the, in, in the last, you know, two years, two to three years, it has accelerated at a pace that was beyond, you know, our expectations, but in line with what the analysts said. You know, they said we're going to be short 200, you know, 250,000 drivers by 2021, 2022. And, and here we are, you know, it's you, you name some of the stats and we're we're all the way there. And that's, you know, even after a number of market corrections that we've done. Tur- I think people just, yeah. I was just going to say tur- turnover for truck drivers and fleets with more than 30 million in revenue is 92 percent turnover yeah. at the end of 2020 for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it's it's insane, and we track that. And unfortunately, we're at a point where we're we're outpacing it. But um, it, it you know, and COVID you know led a lot led to a lot of retirements, you know, early retirements of that driver population, and 
a lot of people who just didn't want to go, you know, have to face the, the, the market again and get back into a truck. And so, you know, we're dealing with that as a compounding factor, but, uh, you know, we had to get up to scale very quickly. And like I said, we, when you're looking at indicators that help make a decision, you have to realize that the pace those indicators are changing. And you know this because you you employ a lot of people as well. Pay scales inherently are trailing indicators. They're not Absolutely. they're not leading indicators. Absolutely. And we we realized, like I realized immediately when I came in, I said, guys, we're looking at something six months or a year old. So when you think we're at the 50th percentile, we're at the 20th percentile. And when you, you know, because this thing is moving so rapidly, just look what's going on. And, you know, you have to know the elasticity of what you're dealing with when you're doing, when you're dealing with pay rates. And so we moved immediately to the 100th percentile. And sure enough, within six months, the new pay scale scale came out and we were back down to the 50th percentile. So, I mean, it is that dynamic. I've never seen uh, you know, especially for this level of workforce, the market moving that quickly. And um, so we we kept moving and notching ourselves up. And in a couple of markets where we just couldn't get drivers, you look at the pay scale data and we're 125 or 140% of what the market pay is. So we're, we're already, you know, trying to get ahead to try to do that. So that's that's table stakes, Rob, you know mm-hmm. that, right? I mean, that's just, you got to pay, pay people. Absolutely. Like, but it, it's the retention piece and how do you, you know, you got to focus on retention and re- improving the workplace. Um, and that's not as easy, you know, and, and we had conducted, you know, we probably had 98% turnover of the driver workforce and we conducted exit interviews of those people. And 90% of those people are leaving because of their work environment and their boss. Right. You know, so, so those aren't easy things to change environment and culture those those are slow moving boats. They're much more challenging than than elevating the pay. Absolutely, <laughs> part of it. Yeah, yeah. So we we had a lot to do in really developing a performance management culture, a reward and recognition system. The, you know, things that seem soft and seem easy. You know, improving the the break rooms. For, you know, for God's sakes. I mean, those little things where drivers came back and they had a place to put their stuff and lockers and all those little things really make the lives of your workers better. And, and so we we started looking at the little things and started focusing on it. And, and you know, the exit interview was a real, a real sharp way to really pick up these pieces. And um, today we've got a driver advisory council, which we just kicked off. So early days there and, and basically interviewing our drivers and talking about the things that they're dealing with and having them make recommendations. We've got 450 drivers. So we, we had to take a, a dozen people and, and really pull them out of their roles for a period of time. Um, and we're doing a, what we call a doc to driver sponsorship, you know? So while there's not a lot of people jumping into class A drivers, you know, CDL driver, um, roles because the qualifications are more and more difficult every day and the requirements are difficult. We we do have people who work for us who want to know how they can get ahead. And you know, if you're a with if you don't have a degree and you've been working on our dock and and you want to get ahead, I mean, you can make a lot of money as a class A driver. So it does require a degree of sponsorship while they stay in their existing job. So we have a a class C to class A, you know, transition sponsorship process that we're we're developing and um but it's it's a it's a daily battle. Yeah, that it, it, that sounds like you've got a, a really a, a systematic approach to that. As you mentioned, it's not just pay; it's it's an entire uh, workforce environment, benefits, culture, all of those sorts of things. First line supervisor training and leadership yeah. is key. We we do stay interviews now, along with uh, of course we do the exit interviews, but we do stay interviews to find out. And reach out and communicate with our folks on why they why they're here with us. Why are they staying? What do they like? What what could we improve? And try to get ahead of that that game and be proactive yeah. to deal with some of I those. Lo- I love it. And then yeah, and, those, that that's great. And looking at you know uh, flexibility with benefits and and flexibility with work and any jobs instead of asking ourselves and it may be a little different with obviously most of your positions you can't uh, you can't have some remote uh, workers but. We're looking at why can't this position be remote as opposed to 
should it be remote? You know, um, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And in the driver space, the flexibility led to in those interviews in the council led to us actually changing some of the conventional over the road um, lanes, you know, where you would send someone out and they'd stay overnight and they wouldn't get back till Thursday or, you know, missing their families. And those harder to fill over the road jobs were now we're doing we're creating positions where people can do meets meets and greets in the halfway. So someone from Atlanta to, you know, taking a load to Ohio is now meeting someone in, in Western Tennessee and coming back the same day and, and able to get home at night. So you now you have two drivers doing the work of one, but you're doing it quicker. You're doing it more efficiently and you're doing them in, in positions that are more attractive to drivers today where people can get home every night. So we found ways to modify the roles and, and it actually ends up working out better and it's safer. You know, you've mm-hmm. got people who aren't staying on the road, who aren't getting up, you know, in a strange hotel every night and and tired and getting back in the truck. So we've worked out ways to try to simplify the roles. That's a, it's a great example of leadership and what, and what one of the key roles of leaders, leaders uh, is today in, in any any organization, but particularly in one that uh, like yours that needs to get ahead of the game and and stay proactive and and maintaining never ending, never ending, never ending, never ending job. Well, how do you how do you as a leader deal with this environment that is so unpredictable and so uncertain these days? Yeah, you know, I think it's you know once you gain the trust of people. And it's it's a it's a never-ending job. So you constantly have to, you know, make sure you re-up your relationship with your organization and have leaders that do the same. You know, you literally you gotta make sure you have the right people on the bus with you. But um for me, I think when you're thinking about an environment that is unpredictable and uncertain, I think you can't for you can't dwell on it. You have to be aggressive and focus on growth of your business and and initiatives that are going to root out you know costs so i i always have I, you've known this too you know growth you know extreme growth um it, it makes up for a lot of evils you know when you're growing at a, such a rapid pace and your turnover rate is such a is such a high rate it makes up for a lot of the you know inconvenient costs in the business and and difficulty that you know you hear so if you're just focused on growth focused on you know taking care of the big priorities in the business it it does it does change the mindset you know where let let those environmental challenges and those other issues bother someone else we're focused on growth and you can't you can't put your head in the sand you know so you got to figure out ways to recession proof your business um, and clearly understand what can go wrong and make sure you put in place early indicators. We literally do quarterly offsites and we've got a, a, I learned this from, you know, pre previous leader, but we, we have a, what I call a risk register and we have the 10 things that could derail us as a business. We look at them and we rate them um, and we chart them as to their level of, you know, likelihood and, and criticality and um and we just review it and we say you know each one of my leaders owns one of the one of the potential risk challenges and they put mitigants in the business as as a leader of that you know you know challenge and they own it and what are how are we measuring it what are we doing in case it happens how do we make sure it doesn't happen and we we focus on it and it, some people may think of that as focusing on the negative I just think it's a, it's, you know, it's building, you know, a mode around your business and really trying to focus on how do you protect what can possibly go wrong. Yeah, you have to mitigate the risk that's out there. But as you said, you can't let that hamstring you and and not allow you to continue to push push the growth pattern that Absolutely. is going to make you successful. My, yeah. my I, I'm fortunate to work. You know, my boss. He's uh, along those same lines philosophically. Is that we we can't sit we can't retrench when times get maybe the interest rates go up a bit we need still need to grow grow mortgages grow our business and, and be Absolutely. proactive about that 
And yeah, and it's 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 key. And a lot of leaders don't, you know, they they kind of focus on, you know, how do I cut? You know, and mm-hmm. I think we invested when the market was going in the wrong direction. Uh, fortunately, before I got here with the new our new private equity team in having the right fleet, the right locations, preparing ourselves for growth. By the time I got here, the, the all the a lot of the tough things were done. Now it was about getting the growth done, and we've been really lucky there, you know. And I think at the same time, Rob, you've got to focus on making sure you're not driving your cost up at the same rate. So you've got to focus on being the lowest cost provider in the industry at all times. Sometimes you can't because you you have to build quality, but you want to be as low a cost provider as you can so that you you can, you know, if things start turning upside down, you can deal with the elasticity of what the market bears and, um, you know, have, have some headroom mm-hmm. if you can. So that's uh, another important piece. That's outstanding. What do you, what do you, uh, some of your core principles, Dan, I, I, and I, and what keeps you motivated? Do you have like a, a set of core principles that you sort of operate by? We, you know, we think of sometimes like corporate yeah. values that keep us kind of going in the right direction. What are your principles about leadership? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't, um, I think you have to surround yourself with the right people first and foremost, right? That complement your skill set. I, I usually, you know, have one or two people that have a complete opposite skill set than I do on my team that, you know, beef up my, maybe my weaknesses in my, in my, uh, my approach to business. Somebody who has the same core values, but not necessarily go about it the same way. So it call it diversification, call it, um, what you will, but I, I, you know, it's, it's not always intuitive for people to say, you know, I need to have a yin with my yang, you know, I need Mm -hmm. to have somebody who's pulling me in the other direction. Um, I think it's always about empowerment and, uh, with empowerment, you you can empower people. I empower leadership to the lowest level as I possibly can, but it also has to come with a culture of accountability. And I think I've said that before. I think you you it's easy to say you're empowered. You know, you said it early. Are are your employees engaged in the business? But they also have to be enabled. You know, enabled on the backside of that engagement to do what they can do and get it done. So. This empowerment and accountability is really important. Um, one of the things I've always done is uh, I tinker with the org structure a lot. And, you know, I told people, you know, change is inevitable. And what I want to do is avoid massive change. And you, you hear about companies who got into a rut and they go through massive reorganizations and you hear about layoffs and you hear about restructuring and division shutting down and, the way I've kind of avoided that in my career, fortunately, is I, I, I've always tinkered with the structure. You have to make little changes along the way that aren't as dramatic and aren't as, you know, impactful to the people just to make sure you stay, you know, on the true north of the business and stay focused on what the goals are. You have to make changes. It changes inevitable and do, you know, making little adjustments along the way is much much better for everybody as you do that. So it's always a focus of mine to really kind of, I call it tinkering, you know, with, mm-hmm. with the organization. And I think a leader, um, you know, all of our people, I think you have to have a level of understanding of each individual you work for. So a level of empathy. And, um, you know, I try to find people work for me that have, um, you know, very, very smart, smartest people I can hire, you know, people smarter than myself, but the people have a sense of, um, of empathy as well, and I think that's key. Well, you, I, I read in uh, an interview, an interview you had uh, some time ago. I've I've read. I think it's Greenleaf was the original author and the guy that coined the term servant leader. Mm-hmm. What would how would you define servant leadership? I know it's important to you. No, I think it's it's key, and you asked. Uh, you know, part of the earlier question was about what motivates me. And, and um, you know, first of all, I'm honored and humble to be in a role that I'm in. But with that comes a, a level of responsibility for your people. And, um, you know, 
what motivates me is, you know, as much getting the job done and, and fear of failure and some of the things that normally go through your mind, but it's also, you know, the managing and supporting our people, making sure they have a livelihood and a, and a place to go home. But servant leadership is really, you know, making sure you develop your people, enable your people, and remove barriers for your people on a daily basis to make them successful. You know, and one of those shifts, you know, for any of the younger listeners, one of the shifts that you have to make as a very successful individual contributor to a leader is knowing the difference between that and knowing that at some point, it's really about all the success of your people. And that's different for every person you lead. So you really have to understand what drives people's motivations and what is success for them. And, you know, some sometimes it's, uh, you know, for one employee, it's about getting to the next job. It's about taking on challenges. Another person, it might be about getting home, you know, to their their son or daughter's baseball game, you know? So it's, right. it's really about understanding that and, and making that part of your daily priority. I say to my, you mentioned removing barriers and, and you've hit, I think, every one of the, the key points I've uh, often used when we're, we're doing leadership training. Removing barriers, I'll say to my folks on a constant basis, what can I do to, to make your job easier? What, what rules do we need to change or, or modify? What, you know, what's going on that's preventing you from doing your job to the best you can, you can do it and to serve our members or customers? Uh, the, the best way possible. So that's a key one. And, and everything you speak of is, is empathy, too. You hear that a lot today is the empathetic leader. You can't, you can be, but I think sometimes pe- people uh, really misuse the term uh, or misunderstand the term empathetic leader because you're, it doesn't mean you're not being accountable, holding people accountable. Uh, but you're, you, all the things you just mentioned go into making sure that person has the, uh, the, all the resources and support they need to do the job. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of great lessons in people who do that, you know, really, really well, better than me, probably, I'm sure. And, um, you know, I think people should really try to understand, you know, what makes everybody tick around them. It's really important. Even, even as peers in business, it's, it's critically important. And the, the other thing you mentioned, I didn't want to lose track of the thought I had when you were talking about is, is empowerment. As you said, it's not just enough to say you're empowered, you know, like tap somebody on the head and say, you're empowered, go ahead. They have to be willing, and this is really for some of the younger folks, I guess, or, you know, they have to be willing to accept the empowerment. They have to know what the boundaries are of their empowerment. Are, are they trained? Do they have the skills to do what you're empowering? And so it's it's obviously not a, not enough just to, to say you're empowered. Well, let's... Uh, couple last questions, Daniel. This has been, been awesome. I really am enjoying this, and I know our listeners will, will enjoy it as well. We've all, I'm a little older than you. I've had a number of bumps, <laughs> a number of bumps in the road, challenges. And, and, you know, for again, for young people starting out, they're going to experience challenges throughout their lives. Um, any lessons learned from any of the challenges you've had? How have you managed to, to um, get through those and, and, uh, and still get to the success where we are today. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the road, the road to success is um, sometimes uh, a wicked road and, and a winding road. So you have to, number one, I think anybody has to know that. And I'm fortunate enough to be sitting here looking in a rear view mirror and in a good place. And there are people who aren't, you know, today and, and understanding that is, really important things are going to happen so you 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 need to know that and you need to first of all prepare yourself you know that things are going to happen and and there are things you can do to you know like i said in in an earlier statement recession proof or you know bulletproof your own career um along the way but you, you you're going to be faced with challenges i've been faced with many many challenges and i think the key is really take everything in perspective um you know, and and it, at the time it's happening, it's hard to do. You know, if you've been laid off, or you know, you've had a uh, you know, you've had a, a challenge with your career where you know you didn't get a promotion, or you uh, had to take a step back in your career. 
it's all happened to me. Trust me. This this path to success in my resume looks like it's just been, you know, one shade of complete success. It hasn't been. Um, and I, I was set back, you know, at a point in my career at one point, and I'll tell you, you know, a quick story with IFCO where I was, you know, a you know, senior vice president leading a division. We decided it was not a core piece of business for us. So I went through the process of M&A and sold off a big chunk of the business I was running. And I was basically, you know, losing my job by selling off this chunk of business. It was a great experience, but I was like, you know, setting it off. But the company said, hey, come back. We'd like you to be a VP. And it was a step down for me, um, a role I really wanted, just I didn't get. And I had to make a decision right then and there. What am I going to do? You know, am I going to sit here and, you know, go looking for another job or mow on it? Or and I decided the culture was still what I wanted. People were still the people I wanted to work with. And I was just going to double down and I was going to figure out how I was going to be the most successful person in that job that I was going to be. And eventually led to, you know, my leadership role at, at, at CHAP and then becoming the president of the same company that I was demoted in, you know, two and a half, three years later. So, I mean, I think it's just all about setting the priorities. And, and, and I used to have this little plaque on my wall that said, um, in, in each adversity, there are seeds of equal or greater opportunity. So you got to almost think about that. And I can honestly say every time I've had a step back, um, it, it, it has always worked out either the same or better in the, in the short and long term. So yeah. maybe it's an attitude. It, it is. I, I, I love that, uh, that, that answer. And it, I think I, I was faced similar with, with similar things in the middle part of my military career. I thought, wow, boy, I don't think I'm going to, the politics, you know, were getting to me and it just wasn't, it doesn't seem like it's working out. And I just continued to focus on what I could do in right. whatever control I had and put trust in the, in the people that, uh, that I was working for, that they're going to recognize that. And, and it all worked out. And, and I yeah. think the other thing that is that we can't let any, any small uh, setbacks define us no, and, and let true. that ruin our, our, uh, our approach to how we do business. And yet you see so many people, you know, get caught up in that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think the difference is now it's an attitudinal one. It's, it's about believing in yourself and believing in, in people around you. So I think that's, that's a great, that's also a great story. And the military's got to be, you know, a lot more political than any organization I've worked for before. Well, that, the last question I have uh, is, is, and you've sort of, maybe you've sort of answered in the previous question I asked, but maybe just one, one short piece of advice for a 2022 graduate from, let's say, the University of Maine, because we're Maine connected, but any university. Any university, yeah. Go, go Black Bears. <laughs> I, would, I would say... Um, you know, I would say that don't worry so much about, you know, finding the right job in the right industry. Um, you know, notwithstanding, um, those are the people um, who are very specific in their degree, you know, in forestry and whatever else. But I think in the business side, don't worry so much about finding the right industry in the right company right out of the shoot. Find a place that is going to be willing to invest in you and find a place that matches your, you know, your core values and the culture you like and and you know companies that are willing to invest in their employees that help them learn learning organizations are the best breeding grounds for post-college graduates you know ever and you know i was fortunate enough to fall into that with with Ryder in my very early days and um you know i have other friends who have done the same and, and it's it's a great place from there you know you have to be willing to put in the hours i mean and have a you know, it's not easy, you know, you, you 40-hour work weeks in those environments, if you want to get ahead in your career, I mean, it it sometimes doesn't exist. And have a bit of stick to is, you know, I used that word before, like, you know, so many people jumping too quickly from job to job. I mean, if you're in a toxic situation, I get it. But I mean, I think you have to stick it out, even if it's tough. You know, there were days in my early, early days at Ryder, I'm like, what am I doing? You know, I'm sitting out here, it's 5 a.m., I'm checking trucks in, it's minus five degrees Fahrenheit, it's snowing, and, uh, you know, I'm going to be here for another 
12 hours today. And, and you know, part of me was like, what, what am I doing? And not realizing that was the learning. That mm-hmm. was the, you know, investing. So be willing to stick it out. Um, I, you you said, I know you have one as well, but find a mentor. You know, don't don't go shopping for one, but understand there might be people right around you that have invested in you, that care about you. Sometimes it's the most unlikely person, right? Right. So have, have somebody you can believe in and, and trust. And you have to be willing to give to them, you know, before they're, going to be willing to get to you, you know, and that's, you know, your commitment sometimes. And, and then just, you know, I think uh, understand what motivates people. Um, that's the most important part of, you know, I think business learning that most people don't think about, but, um, you know, the sooner you get to understand what motivates people around you, the more successful I think you'll be, you know, and that's whether it's sales or operations or finance, you really still have to understand what makes people tick. Well, that that is uh, is awesome advice, and uh, you know, again, I'll make sure you talk to Chase. Sometimes he he listens to you a little bit more than he does me when he graduates. <laughs> and as as my as all my kids, children right? listen to you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Dan. Uh, again, I really appreciate you taking the time on a Sunday morning. And uh, as we talked about before, we we went on the air here. I, I was going to give you a hard time. It's it was 15 degrees up here, and I thought it was maybe 70 <laughs> down there, but it's only like 45 or so. So, I'm not too jealous uh, this morning. But again, thank you uh, for for being part of this podcast today, and I wish you the very best. And it continues success with the role uh, that you're in now. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for another Mainly Matters podcast coming here in the near future.